You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I know you're waiting for our tagline, 40 years or of. It's coming. First, if you own a retail business and accept credit cards, your customers are getting points, miles, and all sorts of rewards every time they use their card, and you're paying the price. That's why NRS Pay, a product of National Retail Solutions, a division of the IDT Corporation, offers its cash discount program, FeeBuster. You can start accepting credit cards for free. If your business processes over $18,000 a month, you pay no monthly fee and $0 out of your pocket for transaction. This means you, as a retailer, can enjoy the benefits of accepting plastic and your customers still get those crucial miles they crave and need. NRS Pay FeeBuster provides every client with a free credit card reader with no long-term contract, no early termination fee, cancel anytime without a penalty. I'm personally familiar with this company, and they truly stand by their product, and they'll help you with live, stateside-based customer service on any issue or question. Visit nrspay.com or call 833-289-2767 to learn more about NRS Pay and the fantastically fair fee buster. And now, Emeritus Rex. 40 years ago, this is Emeritus Rex with Rabbi Reuven Yeshua Pupko. I have to tell you, though, when I connected to you and I realized it was a overseas connection, I thought that I was actually being connected to Yigveni Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner paramilitary group who almost took over Russia. It was incredible. It almost seemed like Russia was overthrown. Uh, he was, the, the, the tanks were marching on Moscow. Uh, Prigozhin and his, and his troops were on their way to who knows. Well, it was a wacky 36 hours over the weekend. I'm not sure if people really understand what happened. I don't know if any of us really understand what happened and its repercussions. But for 36 hours, it looked like Putin to stay in power was uh, at risk. Quickly taken Rostov on the Don. They, t- they took over this very important military site without firing a bullet. It's clear he had some assistance from inside the Russian army. New York Times is reporting that he was being supported by the fellow, the general who had been deposed early on in the war with, uh, with Ukraine and has now been sidelined, although he's still in the hierarchy of the uh, Russian army. He demanded the resignation of, uh, of, of the two leading military figures, uh, which hasn't happened. And then there was this bizarre ending where you had the uh, president of Belarus negotiate that uh, he could find refuge in Minsk, I guess, <laughs> while um, and his soldiers would, would decamp there. And Putin is... I've talked to somebody today who's a native Russian speaker who saw Putin's speech uh, live and described him as being confused and rattled. The Russian elite found this highly destabilizing. Thousands of people escaped from Russia uh, over the weekend thinking the worst was, was going to happen. Ticket Airline ticket prices quadruple. The, the former prime minister, Medvedev, actually left. He turned off his transponder upon takeoff, so no one knows where he went or where he is. And it's, uh, it was highly destabilizing, but Putin survived, but he's clearly very weakened. What it also did, Rabbi, was illustrate the ragtag nature of the Russian military. Prigozhin runs a paramilitary group 
in Russia, and they are used, uh, they have been used on the front lines in the war against Ukraine. By the way, his father was Jewish, as was his stepfather. Prigozhin. Yeah. Well, you know, he did start as a caterer. So he right. started as a caterer in Petersburg. But Prigozhin's father is a Yid? Yeah, yeah. We can only speculate as to the uh, origin and biography of his antecedents. Yes, yes. Well, maybe that's the, maybe that's the reason why I mistook you for Prigozhin. Uh, <laughs> could be. But anyway, the point is, Prigozhin starts off as a caterer. And uh, in, in, in St. Petersburg, Petersburg, Leningrad, which, by the way, coincidentally, is the same place that uh, Putin is from. Right. He's he's eight years younger uh, than Putin. He looks like a very scarred battle veteran or maybe somebody who ate too much chopped liver. I don't know. But he looks but again, like I also read something interesting yesterday that in the hierarchy of the social elite of Russia, Bergosian outranks Putin. You know, in terms of the class of people that he emanates from, uh, his education, he's uh, he speaks Russian in a more elegant manner than Putin. Is that so? Yeah, yeah. But again, you know, he, you're right. I mean, the ragtag nature, this bizarre two-headed hydra where you have the army, you have the Wagner group, you have Bergosian all along for the past months insulting the uh, the Russian army and its leadership. He calls them a bunch of geriatric idiots because yes. he feels and, and this really you know, corroborates the fact that the army has been sloppy in taking on Ukraine, that they've made so many mistakes. And also, I saw that Prigozhin feels his his Hevra, his paramilitary group have suffered some of the major losses. His his people have died. And that's one of the reasons why he was uh, so right. adamant that he wanted these again, people many of the people under his command were the recently re- released convicts. 20,000 or so died in Bakhmut. I think he himself was in prison for a while, but maybe that's a schus in, in Russia. But again, he, he's also highly connected and interwoven with the oligarchs that are in uh, Putin's circle. But again, I think one of the most important effects of all of this may be a further demoralization of Russian troops. We've all been reading about how the Ukrainian soldier has... Is, is high more is, is more motivated. They're, they're highly committed to their cause, and the, just the morale of the Russian soldier uh, couldn't match it. And now to think that they're in battle for a embattled leader certainly cannot inspire them. And uh, if, Putin, if Putin looks shaky, it's hard to believe Russians are going to continue to take up arms for him. This is this could very well be the beginning of the end. Well, I have to tell you that the images that I saw of Putin. Man looks damn good for 70 years old. You know, he definitely radiates a certain power. I mean, compare it to Biden. Biden thought the war was in Iraq. Biden said his war against Iraq is not going to go so good. (laughs) No, but according to the people who watch Putin, and you look at the analysts, everyone's saying he looked deeply rattled when he gave his post-coup attempt speech. That he doesn't look like he's in control. I, sh- I should note that, you know, again, we've sort of made fun of everybody here. But one of the things that the that the Russian investigative journalists discovered was that there a seat in, a, a secret cash in his apartment with forty eight million dollars and, and many, many false passports. So I think right. they were trying to say that Prigozhin, who knows? And Prigozhin, of course, has responded that this fifty million dollars or so is meant to pay the mercenaries and pay the widows and everybody else who have died. It reminded me very much of the safe in my synagogue office. <laughs> yeah, look, they're all a kupa shoshrotzim, but you're right, this could mean, 
you know, again, we talk about Gogomogog. I mean, this is clearly a Wildkite going on. Again, there's a tendency, which I don't think is really that present here. There's a tendency to think, well, if only get rid of this bad guy, things will be good. If Putin was deposed and Prigozhin was now in charge, things wouldn't be better. There might be worse. So, is, again, you know, you, you know, just because, you know, uh, you know, you can get rid of uh, a czar and end up with, uh, with Stalin, you know, yep. you, can, uh, you can get rid of the king in Thailand and, uh, and end up all apart. And of course, Eretz Yisrael once again is, you know, in the middle here, you know, uh, about who to support in terms of Russia, in terms of... Well, uh, Ukrainian Ukraine. ambassador of Israel bashed Bibi for, uh, for not being sufficiently supportive of Ukraine. That was probably triggered by Bibi in an interview expressing concern that some of the weapons that the Americans were providing Ukraine had ended up in Russian and then Iranian hands. And, uh, and, and and the Ukrainian government wasn't all that happy. Now there's talk today about Bibi actually traveling to Kiev, I guess, you know, to shore up um, relations or, or as a public demonstration of support. Because while at the beginning of the war, there was this dance going on where the Israelis didn't want to alienate the Russians because of, uh, of the Russian role in greenlighting Israeli attacks on Iranian sites in Syria and Syrian sites. Uh, now it's clear that given the Iranian-Russian alliance and given that Iran is now a full partner in the war in Ukraine and that Iran is sending drones to Russia and Russia is sending uh, military aid to Iran, that Israel clearly has defined Russia as, uh, as an adversary. But again, I don't know how that will translate into more support for Ukraine, but it will certainly translate into less rhetorical reticence by Israeli leadership in support of Ukraine. And I, I would assume just on two points here. First of all, Bibi sounds right. When you, when you send these super sophisticated weapons into areas that are so tentative in terms of being conquered, he, he seems to have a good point about these weapons now being uh, going over to the other side. So I think that was a pretty decent point. Yeah, so but I again, I think everyone, anyone who's a friend of Israel understands that when America is strong, when the West is strong, that has clear benefits to Israel. And if, if this is a defining moment in our generation about the, the, the willingness of the West to stand up for its values by supporting Ukraine, not supporting Ukraine, would leave the West looking weak and divided. I think clearly everybody would want to see the West win here and, and therefore give weapons to Ukraine. The other thing is, is in the you know in the left the left's assault on Bibi's government now is part of their criticism that Bibi is uh, kowtowing to Putin? Is that part of what they say? Why he's such a monster as well? Is that being used as? I haven't as, heard that much. No, no, I haven't. I haven't seen that. I mean, they have, en- they have enough invective as it is, but I know that this. Was- I mean, there were there were people who would have liked to have a more vigorous pro pro Ukrainian posture from the beginning. But I, you don't hear criticism today because it's clear that Israel understands that in its great battle with Iran, whose side Russia is on. Yeah, you know, we're, we're going to turn first. I want to just mention parenthetically, DeSantis, I think, has been one of the few uh, announced Republican candidates to question the amount of uh, aid that it's going to the Ukraine. He seems to be... And, he he I guess, backed down a little bit, but there's no question that if you ask me about a flaw with DeSantis, it's his unwillingness to say or do anything 
that would alienate the far reaches of the Republican right. And on this issue, the, the broad mainstream of Republican voters, I think, are supportive of what America is doing in Ukraine. But again, messages from, from Republican leadership, you know, most Republicans has been OK, but there are certainly you can't you can't dismiss it by calling it a fringe only. But there are voices in the Republican Party that are skeptical of support for Ukraine. They talk about it's not our battle. We should really focus on China. Ukraine is corrupt. They can't be trusted. I actually heard something even more incredibly Republican is that Putin is merely a latter day Abraham Lincoln. That the same I'm way from slavery, exactly. No, but Lincoln's Lincoln's. Oh, you mean to go out in the Civil War? Lincoln's right. grabbing of presidential war power and his willingness to suspend habeas corpus, his willingness to fight the battle against the South, was based on the fact that they were destroying the Union. Putin felt that Ukraine, even though technically it was a separate country, was really part of what. Russia is, that Russia and Ukraine are essentially one country, and that the powers that be were creating a a sort of confederacy that was separating them from what unified them. And therefore, Putin acted... There's a long argument in Russian history about the place of, of, of Ukraine in that history. But there's also a very long history of Ukrainian nationalism you know, of which we, our people were, were victims too often. But yes. there's a long history of Ukrainian nationalism you know, seeking independence for, for Ukraine. When the Soviet Union broke up, their treaties were signed, recognizing the international borders. Remember, Ukraine surrendered uh, the nuclear weapons that were on its territory from, you know, from the time the USSR uh, existed. And they gave back their, uh, their, their nuclear weapons. Even people like Henry Kissinger, who was skeptical of the need to expand NATO eastward. And thought it might be a provocation. Even people like that are now very supportive, not only of Ukraine in this war, but are supportive of Ukraine joining NATO. So Russia's response, or I should say, put it that way, Russia's aggression uh, was so beyond anything uh, that anyone ima- that anyone thought possible, and has been so egregiously cruel that uh, whatever skepticism there was in the higher reaches of the foreign policy establishments in, in Washington or Paris or London, well, you know, that skepticism has gone out the window. Yeah, but look, obviously, you know, when you target uh, children and you uh, attack hospitals and you torture people, your claim that you're doing this for the sake of the union withers away. You know, I, I can't help but comment, though, Rabbi, that you speak to me and so, once again, so brilliantly and and wonderfully, as always, I, I can't help but note that we are conversing across thousands of miles. You were in the, right. the Hellenic state of of Greece, a place that we have such a. I'm on the island of Eos. So basically, you are not connected to the mainland. Are you? You? you how did you get there? Did you have to take a, a helicopter? I had to take a ferry. I took a ferry. Uh huh. I see. So the ferry boat. Uh, took you and everyone else over, I guess, the agency. Am I right about that? The agency? Yes. So you're over, you, you went over the agency to this little island. Did it, did it strike you as the Holocaust maven that you are that the, the aspects in, of, of the Holocaust in Greece 
have not really received the same amount of pub as the ones in other parts of Europe, even, right? And we know that that there was an incredible, the second largest city in Greece, which we call Salonika, which they call Thelis Salonika, had 50,000 Jews. Uh, but, you know, I want to say war. something. Not only did it have, I think, one of the oldest Jewish communities in the world. I mean, they, they were there for, uh, for, for, I think, millennia. I mean, very old Jewish community. They were remarkably wonderful Jews, the Jews of Salonika, the Jews of Rhodes, and those communities were were wiped out in the, in the Holocaust. You know, there's a, a woman named Lena Berg, who a uh, survivor who wrote uh, her memories of her time in Auschwitz, and she describes a group of 100 Jewish girls from Greece who, who were brought together from Auschwitz, who after a few months were unrecognizable, and then were taken to their death, and how they sang Hatikva uh, in their dying in their last moments. Uh, it's a remarkable community. We also know the story. And, and, and I, remember, until 1943, they weren't sure that they were going to be oppressed. Right, I mean, like, right. right. But in 1943, it came down like a thunderbolt, and, yeah. and the and they were they were eliminated. In Eighty, not almost 90 percent of of Grecian right. Jews were 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 deported and killed. And as you say, the Salonicans were 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 very from people. They had a, a rich culture. Yeah, they were one really uh, remarkable community. You're right. The story of Salonican Jews is not as well known as it should be, but it is a remarkable part of the uh, Jewish diaspora history. But there's even a story of the, of the transport of boats, caravan of boats that the Nazis sent to pick up the Jews uh, from Greece. And they diverted the entire caravan to go to a small island, I forget the name, a small island, because they heard one Jew was there. And they picked up a Jew, his family name was Rachman. They picked him up and they took him to Auschwitz and murdered him. That was the uh, the murderous efficiency of the enemy. I sent you an article, I don't know if you had a chance to look at it, from the Times of Israel from this past March. There is still a, a, a woman living in Greece. She's 96 years old. She lives in a small town, Larissa, in Greece. And she has been a, her memory is still very sharp. She talked about how she her job was to rip clothing maybe taken from prisoners and to turn them into sort of handkerchiefs or bandanas that the nazis could wipe their rifles with that's that was her job to strip these now every couple of hours the the overseers would ask the girls to lift their hands up and the reason was was to see which one of them were were becoming uh, less and less, less with less girth on their arms, and the ones that seemed to be fading away would be shifted away and taken straight to the crematorium, to to the gas chambers. Incredible, incredible. You know, in other words, the the efficiency, the the cruelty, the hatred, the the demonic use of human beings that the Greek. Uh, community suffered. I know there was a, uh, I think it's in Salonika, there is a, a Holocaust memorial. Yes, there is. Right? But I know it was defaced, uh, I think, in 2012. And Greece itself is a strange place. It did not have formal relations with Israel until 1990. The things are better. There's more of a conservative government in, in Greece now. Things are better. Also, since um, 
since the Mava Mar the whole story with Turkey and Israel, you know, moved away from Turkey, there's better relations with Greece now. So things are much improved than they used than they were before. So I know you're on this island, you know, in, 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 you know, and I know that you're in a sort of a monastic state now. But did you get a sense? What was your what was your sense of of Greece? Was it just I'm, I'm you you flew into Athens and then you. Got on this ferry? I, I have absolutely no sense of Greece. I, I, I was in an airport. I was in a ferry. I'm at a hotel. I was at a Jewish wedding. Not saying that I'm connected at all to local culture. So, so to quote the late Olivia Newton-John, just Greece is just a word to you. Greece is the I word. Would not, I would put it differently. It's Greek to me. <laughs> I see. Take care, everybody. We'll catch you next time. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.